In the first century, the Jerusalem chief priests and the elders were responsible for deciding whether or not the Messiahs had the right credentials. This explains why during Jesus' last week before the cross, this question of authority took center ring. Let's turn with our study leader, Dave Wurtson, to Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, as Matthew brings us up close and personal when these spiritual authorities come to Jesus and ask him, who gave you this authority? One of the time reporters lives in Paris. How many of you parents go to see your kids at school and you eat meals with them and stuff? Well, this reporter was sharing that in Paris, you're not welcome at the school for your kids. Uh, they don't want you anywhere near there. In fact, they'll frisk you. That's a little bit extreme, but they don't want you. You drop your kids off and that's it. I read something else really interesting. How many of you ever heard that the French eat all this pasta? They eat French bread. They have chocolate that's incredibly good. That's like a thick, hot chocolate that you can drink on the street. And yet the French are much slimmer than American. You ever heard that? Well, I found out the reason for that is that there will be like 150 little five, six, and seven-year-olds. They'll be gathered in the cafeteria to eat their lunch, and the government, the French government, puts out a menu that is like the laws of the Medes and Persians. And actually, the French head of the lunchroom knocks and says, children, I would like your attention. And all 150 of them get quiet. And then in French, they said, now, for our first course, we will have a nice broth. And then for our second course, we're going to have some, and they named the salad. And they go through the entire menu. And these 150 kids are perfectly quiet. And they actually go through, like, for lunch, they have this many, many course meal. This is totally controlled. The city of Paris says that all of your children are going to eat this kind of food. And even this time reporter didn't have the guts. In fact, they actually called this time reporter in because she was going to school and getting her child out of lunch so that she could spend some time with her. And they actually took this mom in and said, now what are you feeding your child during that lunch. Talk about living under authority. But before we're too critical, I want you to know that the French really do eat a lot, but they've learned over the years that eating isn't just running by McDonald's, stopping at the window, grabbing six hamburgers for your kids and Diet Coke and all that and rushing to the next soccer game. They've learned that food is serious business. And so they teach their kids from the time they're little bitty kids They authoritatively teach them this is the right way to eat. And eating is sitting down, and it is eating slow, and it is talking with your friends, and it is savoring the food. The French have authority when it comes to food. Often in our church family, I get calls, and someone will tell me, man, my head is hurting, and you know, I'm, I'm not really feeling that great, and I'm going to go over to the hospital. So you go to Mansfield, you go to Waxahachie. If you're really, really sick, they take you up to Dallas. And when you go into the emergency room, they take you through this triage, and they, they analyze whether you need to be there. If they check you in, then you have a series of doctors that come in with white coats. I want you to know that those doctors in the white coats 
he or she has gone four years to college. Then they've gone four more years to medical school. Most of them have, have then taken, they all have taken a board exam that they studied for hour after hour, hour after hour. And then most of them went on for three more years of residency. They had to pass more boards to pass the residency. And their peers had to say, this person in the white coat is an authority that you can depend upon. And even at that, sometimes I wonder whether I can depend upon them, right? But when it comes to food, when it comes to healthcare, we get really, really serious. Flying. Like some of the guys in our church are pilots. Some of them fly across the big pond. If you go to Philadelphia and you're going to fly U.S. Airways, Dale Knott that flies for U.S. Airways, Dale will fly from here to Philadelphia and you'll get in one of these great big Airbuses and there will be four pilots and they are rotating, they're switching off and they will only be able to fly so many hours and they will safely take you across. Now, Dale didn't just suddenly show up at U.S. Airways and said, hey, I think it'd be really neat to fly an Airbus from Philadelphia over to Rome. Dale started out doing just, you know, taking private lessons in little airplanes, and he moved up, and he started getting, building up his hours. He had to get his commercial license, got to get his instrument license. He got to build up his hours to several thousand hours, and finally he was able to get on with Agony Airlines. That was Allegheny Airlines, and it was in the East Coast, and then with Piedmont, and then it joined to be U.S. Airways. In fact, Dale still, even as a senior pilot, he has to go into the simulator several times a year to make sure that he has the skills, and then they stamp that he has the authority to fly you across the ocean. What blows my mind is that all of you in this room are really into authority. You are into authority on food. You're into authority on medicine. You're into authority about making your big flight over the big pond. But as I talk to people, very few people think anything at all about authority when it comes to making the big trip. I'm really serious. Last Sunday morning, I talked to Rex as they came into the service. And he was telling me, Dave, you know, my blood pressure isn't so good. And so I really want you to pray about that. And we're getting it checked out. Well, Rex was on a bulldozer at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. Suddenly, his heart gave out. The bulldozer kept running going. He always said, I want to die driving my dozer. But he told Ann, his wife, I want to turn it off before I go home. Well, he didn't make it. And Pat just told me that's because he just wanted to take it on to heaven with him. He drove right through a fence, ran into a tractor trailer, and the guys were working with him see this big old cat, you know, grinding away. You know, the tread still going and going. They had to rush over there. Rex was gone. Where did he go? Now, you live in a culture that says, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. There's no hell below us. Above us, only sky. You know, we just live for today. Most of you don't really believe that. I've never had anyone say, let's just live for today when a person's dead. Nobody says that. But we all say, well, Rex is home. Rex Rankin was one of the guys that I got to know early in the 70s when I came here and his wife taught all of our kids to read. Rex uh, laid the pad out for the church and did all kinds of stuff, laid a lot of foundations. How do we know that he's home? Where did he go? Where did he go? Now, you live in a culture that says, in fact, I'm amazed, you know, being here in this area a long time. Everybody says, oh, everybody's fine. Everybody makes it. How do you know that? 
want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 21 because as we get ready for Easter, the big issue is who has the authority to forgive our sins and then who has the authority to take us safely home when we've got to make the biggest trip of all. And in Matthew chapter 21, it's the next day. The Lord Jesus has just entered Jerusalem the day before uh, on the incredible triumphal entry as he presented himself as the king. And then in Matthew 21, we read that he comes again to the city of Jerusalem. It says that early in the morning as he went, was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. So Jesus was on his way back to the city. And as he comes into the temple courts, look at verse 23. We want to look at three special messages that Jesus has for us. Number one, Jesus makes a very strange connection. When he is asked about his authority, he asks the religious authority of his day, what do you think about John the Baptist? Now, that's a weird twist, and we've got to figure that out. Jesus always doesn't seem to answer our questions. The second thing Jesus is going to do is going to tell a very powerful story. In fact, when I tell my grandkids that were with us the last couple of days, Papa will tell you a story. I've got all ears. Mary last night read the kids' stories for like an hour and a half before they went to bed. You are built in as soon as someone says, well, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story. We're all ears. So the Lord Jesus tells a story about two sons. We need to figure out what's the meaning of that story. And then the third thing he does is he tells a story about murder, a stoning and murder in the vineyard. Not hardly the stuff you tell your little four- and five-year-olds, although maybe we should. But Jesus tells this very, very powerful story. We're going to close there this morning because that story will get you killed. Like, if you ever wonder, like, I can't figure out why Jesus got killed at the end of his last week. Well, I'm going to give you a really good reason why he got killed. It's very, it's, kind of, it's the kind of story that he told. Let's look, first of all, at this big conflict. I want you to see the picture. Jesus is in the temple. He's in the outer courts, maybe in the, in the Stoa of, of Solomon, which are these big columns with a kind of a covering that goes around the outside of one of the courts in the temple. And that's where the rabbis would interact together. Even if you go to Jerusalem today, Dave and Deb just got back from the Holy Land. You can ask him. If they were down at the Welling Wall, you can go underneath the Welling Wall. There's these big arches, and I've done it many times, and there's all these yeshivas where the rabbis are teaching. And you can see all the rabbis and their students still debating. It's just like it was in the first century. One of my friends actually goes down there and goes underneath those arches, and he is a Polish Jewish kid that's now in his 80s that was delivered from World War II and, and fought in the War of Independence, and he loves to argue, just like Jesus did here with the rabbi. So I want you to feel there's tremendous pressure here. And if we read that Jesus comes to the temple courts, and look what he does. While he was teaching, so Jesus is teaching the people. The crowds are still gathering. It says the chief priests and the elders of the people. See it there in verse 23? The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And they asked a really important question. They asked the question that I've raised this morning. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, those are really important questions. Number one, they, they ask him, by what authority are you cleansing the temple, throwing the money changers off? By what authority are you healing the lame and the blind? By what authority did you come marching into Jerusalem in a big festal procession and present yourself as the Davidic Messiah? That's what they're asking. And then they ask, who gave you that authority? Now, that's really important. So how does Jesus answer the question? First of all, I want you to think, 
Why did they ask him that question? Because that's their job. These are the chief priests. The chief priests were Annas was the big daddy of the chief priests at that time. Caiaphas is the actual acting high priest. It's all this integral family. Remember that the priesthood have to be the sons of Aaron down through the priestly line. It's their job in Judaism to ask the question when somebody claims to be a prophet, when somebody claims especially to be the Messiah, it's their job to ask and to figure out whether they have the authority to do that. I want you to know that earlier in Jesus' boyhood, when Jesus was just maybe about 10 years of age, there was a Jewish Messiah that rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. And a lot of people followed him. The Romans came in and just cut him down. He turned out he wasn't the Messiah. There were two or three instances like that, even in Jesus' ministry. If you ever hear, well, the, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. Oh, yeah, they were. In 130 A.D., after Jesus' life, Bar Kokhba, that I've often told you about, the son of the star rose up. One of these rabbis, like this, a guy named Rabbi Akiba, Akiba said, yeah, this is the Messiah. He reluctantly was pulled in, but he eventually gave his full support to Bar Kokhba. And Bar Kokhba got thousands and thousands of Jews to rise up against Hadrian and said, I'm the Messiah. And Hadrian's legions came in and just massacred the Jews. And that was the final disbursement. So I want you to know that historically, this issue, when someone that's Jewish, that starts to have a big following, and they claim to be the Messiah, it is a hot-button issue. And that's what's happening in the last week of Jesus. Jesus has just written, written into the city, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. He has presented himself in the temple, said, I'm the Lord of the temple, and he cleanses it. So they're asking, who gave you this authority? By what authority are you going to do that? That's a good question. And you should ask the question with them. The chief priests and the elders, so the elders of the people are the lay people, but they're the wisely chosen. In our society, we're having like a big race for judge. And we try to choose wise people to be judges. In Israel, they had the wise elder people that were men in their culture that would actually serve with the high priest in the Sanhedrin. Their job was to protect the people of Israel from false claim to the Messiah. So there's nothing wrong with them asking the question. When your little kid said, why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we trust in Jesus? I learned at school today about lots of people in the world that believe in other, other people and they trust in other people. You need to have an answer for that. By what authority? Why do we believe in Jesus? Now notice how Jesus answers the question. Jesus likes to answer questions with questions. And you need to remember that. That's a great teacher. Those of you that are teachers, I won't charge you for that. One of the best ways to teach people is to answer questions with a question. But you have to, you have to ask them a question that if they want to, it will answer their question because Jesus doesn't really dodge their question, but he does a very powerful thing. And if they want to, and if you want to this morning, if you want to find out, is Jesus really the authority? Has Jesus been given divine authority that he can take me to heaven, that he can forgive me for my sins? You can get the answer to that question. But you have to listen carefully, and you've got to track with Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Jesus replied, I will ask you, verse 24, I will also ask you a question. By the way, this is a very common thing 
My Jewish friends that I was raised with in New Jersey still did this. They would ask questions, you'd ask them a question, and you debated back and forth. It's an old rabbinic technique and argument. I will also ask you a question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John, that is John the Baptist. Now, Matthew begins the book of Matthew with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, where did he come from? Was his authority from heaven? Where did John's authority come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And he said, well, hey, why in the world did Jesus deflect it away from himself to John the Baptist? Because in the first century, all of the Jewish people said John the Baptist is a great man. How many of you in the audience would say, John the Baptist, if I said, true or false, did John the Baptist tell the truth? How many of you would say, truth or false? Everybody tell me. Was John the Baptist just a religionist that did it for money? How do you know that? Ministers that dress just in, in skins and eat locusts and honey, they're not driving G4s around, I promise you. So all of those, when you hear, about, and this is real important, because a lot of your unbelieving friends say, I don't believe any of this stuff and everything. Well, you need to tell them this. Well, you'll have to think about John the Baptist. You see, all the people had gone down. In fact, there was a mighty moving of God's spirit. Do you remember what John the Baptist preached? Can anybody tell me what John the Baptist's basic message? You remember what it was? That's good. Great. Awesome. Repent for? You got it. Good. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this guy dressed in skins down at the Jordan River in this place that looks like the moon. It's desert, kind of like Arizona, like I thought. Yeah. And John the Baptist and thousands of people are coming from all over Israel, powerful moving in the spirit, and he's baptizing them in the Jordan River. Why is that important? Because the book of Malachi that we're going to study together a little bit later, the book of Malachi chapter 3 said a prophet like Elijah. You know who else dressed in skins? Elijah did. In the Old Testament. You know who else ate locusts and honey? Elijah did. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah because Malachi said that before the Messiah came, there would be one that was Elijah. And that's why Jesus is not just dodging the question. What you decide about John the Baptist is what you'll decide about Jesus. Those that responded to John the Baptist responded to Jesus. How did they respond? They repented. They were sorry for their sins. They were convicted about their sins. They came to John and they said, John, we want to be ready when the Messiah comes. We want to welcome the Messiah. And some of them were there when John looked at Jesus coming. In the book of John, it tells us one day Jesus came and John the Baptist said, behold, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All of that kind of argument is present. What do you think about John the Baptist? Was he from heaven? Now, what do you think? How many of you think John the Baptist was, had heavenly authority, that he had God's gift upon him, or he was just a human prophet? How do you decide that? Look at it. Look at, go back and read that. When your kids ask you the question, tell your kids, go and read. All of your life, you evaluate. Is this person a liar, or is he a man of truth? Is this woman a really someone that has integrity, or are they hypocritical? You make those judgments every single day. Make the judgments about John. My personal conviction is, when I study about the record, John the Baptist told the truth. In fact, he got his head cut off because he told the king, don't commit adultery. Herod Antipas, you took Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, and it's wrong. 
And Herod kept coming to visit John in the palace of Machaerus. And John the Baptist got his head cut off. Well, one thing I know about reality is when someone that's teaching about spiritual things and has moral conviction to still call adultery wrong, even though it means they get their head lopped off, they're a person of truth. And all of the Israelites had decided John's authority is from heaven. Now, I want you to notice something. What would you think that the priests and the elders would do? What should they have done? Matthew wants you to realize the, the authorities, the priests should have said, well, Jesus, of course we know John's authority. He fulfilled Malachi chapter 3. He is the one that lived with integrity. He's the one that believed in the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He even gave his life for that. Of course he's from heaven, which is a synonym for he's from God. But you know what? The, the, the priests didn't believe that. So notice what it says in the next verse. It's very perilous. They discussed it. They didn't just discuss. They got in a fight. They're arguing back and forth. Man, what are we going to do? They're in a dilemma. They said, if we say that his authority of John the Baptist was from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why don't you believe in him? Notice that they give away themselves. They didn't believe in John the Baptist. Do you? Every one of you today, in your heart, deep inside, you believe in John the Baptist? If you believe in John the Baptist, you'll believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in John the Baptist, you won't believe in Jesus. And that's your decision. These chief priests and the majority of them and the elders, now there's going to be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea because the Lord says this is an individual thing. Not all of the priests and not all of the elders didn't believe in Jesus. Some of them in the early chapter of Acts, we find out that many of them did believe. But the ones that made the decisions, the ones that pulled the majority said no. Now, notice what they say. This is a very powerful thing. Look what it says. They say, if we say his authority was from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So the answer Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, this is real important. I want all of you to listen to me. Teachers that are concerned about the opinion of the crowd don't tell the truth. Did you hear what I just said? Teachers that are concerned about the opinion of the crowd don't tell the truth. These chief priests and elders didn't really believe that John the Baptist was from God. That's why they rejected him. They really rejected him because if they followed John, they'd have to accept Jesus and they'd lose their power, their authority, their prestige. They're going to lose their building and everything. By the way, they lost all that anyway a few years after Jesus. But right now this morning, as, you, as I'm telling you this account, you decide in your own heart. Deep inside of you, as businessmen and women, some of you are going to care more about your constituency than you do about the truth. And that shows which side you're on. That's what this text is about. That's what Jesus does. As moms and dads, you decide. All right, and, and you raise your kids from the time you're small. Do mom and dad care for truth or what everybody thinks? Because Jesus penetrates. That's what Jesus does. Jesus exposes what's really going on inside Dave Wharton's heart and what's going on in your heart. Jesus answered their question. If you believe in John the Baptist, John the Baptist pointed to me. He was from God, therefore I'm from God. You should get down on your knees and trust in me. But they rejected it. And they rejected him because they cared about their popularity. They cared about maintaining themselves. 
Then Jesus, as if that wasn't enough, they're already getting really uptight with him. Jesus tells them a story. It's a very powerful story about two sons. Look what it says. And the focus here on is, do I look at words or actions? I want all of you kids to listen to me. The Lord says, children, obey your parents. And I want all the kids to know that the Lord doesn't want you to say, oh, yes, I'll obey you. And you just sit there. It's time to eat. You just sit there. Oh, yes, mom and dad, I'll be right there. As adults, I can do that. Mary called me for dinner. I'm working my computer. I'll be right there. That doesn't mean anything. It might mean I'm still shutting down on my programs. How about you? How many of you understand it's not what people say, it's what they do that determines what's true? Everybody understand that? How do you know that? Because Jesus teaches that. Look what he says. He tells them, why do you think? There was a man who told his sons, he went to the, to the further and said, son, I want you to go out and work today. It's a hard thing to get sons to do at time. I want you to go and work today in the vineyard. And this son says, I will not. He answered, but later he changed his mind. Had a change of heart. He turned around and he went. Then the father went to the other son. Like when his first son said, no, I'm not going to do it. The father went to his, to his second son and he said, son, I want you to go out and work in the field. It says he said the same thing. And the son says, oh, yes, I will, sir. And notice he's respectful. I will, sir. Watch out for those sons and daughters. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? What do you think? And I want every one of you to listen. This is really important. If you're going to follow Jesus, or if Jesus has really come into your heart, then you act. There's a whole bunch of you that says, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But I cheat. But I don't keep my word. But I lust after people that don't really belong to me. I give in to angry. Jesus says I should forgive people 70 times 7. I'm still nursing a grudge. Jesus says, hey, I don't want to hear your words. I want you to break before me. Because we can't act unless Jesus acts through us. But one of the reasons why I follow Jesus is because the longer that I live, the more that I know this is really the truth. It's not what people say. It's not the church services they go to. It's not the synagogue they go to. It's not the mosque they go to. It's not all the religious stuff they do. And it's not the leaders that can say beautiful, beautiful words. If you want to really know what people really believe, look at what they actually do. What do you do? What do your actions say about your convictions of obedience to your heavenly father? What do my actions say? Notice what the high, priest, the high priest and the elders say. Well, of course, the first one, the one that actually obeyed. So they condemned themselves. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, look at this. This is powerful. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, but you did not believe. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw that you did not repent and believe in me, you did not believe in John which meant you would have lived in me. I want you to notice something. In our church a few weeks ago, remember we had a big issue about the whores. But I want all of you moms and dads to really understand something. That if Jesus is really at work, we're going to have some whores that are here. In fact, in my ministry, we actually had two of them very early in our ministry that the Lord called us in Midlothian Bible Church to work with. And Dan and Gina are sitting here they had one of them that came and lived with their family. And you talk about a con artist. 
One of those prostitutes came to know Jesus and she died very soon after that. You know what? In the real ministry of Jesus, prostitutes followed him and they were transformed. And tax collectors, for you Republicans, that was worse than Michael Moore. And for you Democrats, you want to think of someone that you just say, if they ever show up, I would throw them out. You see, a tax collector actually collected money for the Romans from his own people. They were contracted to collect money from their Jewish people, and they paid off the Romans, and then they collected a lot more. So they were hated. So Jesus chose two groups, but you know what? Sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors broke before the ministry of John the Baptist. And then they broke before Jesus. And they were forgiven. And the big question I ask myself as I grow older, do I still see myself as a tax collector and as an immoral, unfaithful person unless Jesus really gives me new life on a day-by-day basis? How about you? See, one of the really powerful things is that I can become like these priests. What's convicting to me in this passage is I become like the priests. And then Jesus tells a very powerful story to end this section in Matthew, he tells a story about the vineyard and the tenants. And he described the story, he says, and they, and they all understood this story. He said there was a master that built an incredible vineyard. He cleared off the land. He built a, a rock wall around it. He built a tower in the, in the middle of it. He plowed up the ground and made it right and planted the vineyard. And then he leased it out, which was a very common thing to do. All over the hills of Judea, there would be leased out tenant-run vineyards. And then the master that owned the vineyard sent his servants to collect. After five years, when the the vines were finally producing, the Lord of the vineyard sent his servants to say, I'm the Lord of the vineyard. I gave you the vineyard. And they stoned some of those. They, They abused some of them. And this went on year after year. Finally, the master said, well, I'm going to send my son. And when my son goes to the vineyard, surely those that I lease the vineyard to, are going are to respond to him. So he sent his son. When his son walked into the vineyard, the tenant people that were controlling that vineyard took the son and they murdered him. And they threw him outside the vineyard. Now what is the Lord of the vineyard going to do? Now this is powerful stuff. Totally unpolitically correct. This is what Matthew's saying. It's really important. Matthew's Jewish. He's saying in the first century, Jesus actually said to the chief priest, and this is before he was crucified, he said, your whole Old Testament history is the Lord God of heaven gave you the people of Israel. And you are responsible to take care of my vineyard. Israel's often presented in the prophets as God's vineyard. The book of Hosea uses that analogy. But the story of the Old Testament is that God sent his prophets to the people of Israel. And their leadership, again and again and again, scorned them, stoned some of them. And what Jesus is actually saying is, it's the last week. Now God has sent his son. And even before they did it, Jesus said, the son was going to be murdered and thrown out of the garden. 
And Jesus said, the Lord, what is he going to do? He said, the Lord's going to come. And he's going to take that vineyard and he's going to give it to some people that will produce its fruit. And the passage closes with the high priest and elders getting together and says, how do we take this man's life? What are you supposed to do? You need to enter into the story. What happened was there were Jews that day that heard Jesus tell that story in the crowd saw him say that to the high priest, and later on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, they said he predicted this. And on Easter morning, Jesus rose again from the dead, and a bunch of Jews that heard Jesus teach, like I've tried to enter in and help you to enter into it, a bunch of those Jews said, this man that could tell us beforehand that he would be rejected, that he was the son, that he actually was God's son, that he owned the vineyard. We're going to get down on our knees and we're going to trust him. We're going to believe him. We're going to depend upon him. But the religious leaders, for the most part, and the powerful people among the Israelites said no. Those that said no, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. The temple was torn down. And they were scattered. And like I taught you the last time we were together, the remnants of these leaders, the elders of the people, especially the Pharisees, went on the coast of the Mediterranean and they said, we're going to set up a religion that's built totally on the synagogue and obedience to the Mosaic law. And you bring that into the modern world, that's where Orthodox rabbinic Judaism comes from. And I want you to understand that I'm not on my own authority. Not on my own authority am I rejecting them. But based upon what Matthew just taught us and what Jesus is actually saying, because Jesus is saying that there was another group of Jews and they responded to him and also that the door would be thrown open to all of you that are not Jews. And the issue this morning that Jesus is challenging Dave Wurtzen with, that he's challenging you with is, which son am I going to be? The one that has action? Which group am I going to join with? Am I going to trust in the son? Am I going to admit that that evil, will I admit that I'm like a tax collector, that I'm like a prostitute? Will I admit that that darkness is inside of me so that I cry out to Jesus and let his death forgive me and then let the power of the resurrection change me? Or will I just keep hanging on to religion, keep hanging on to pretending, keep hanging on to pleasing the people? Those are the big issues of Easter week, the last week. 